Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to the therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes author Kimberly Brubaker Bradley to the show for part one of their two-part conversation about using fiction to better understand attachment. Part two will be released on Tuesday, September 14th. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock for another episode. Today, our guest is youth fiction writer, Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. She is a two-time Newbery honoree and a number one New York Times bestselling author. And the reason that I wanted to have her on my podcast is because I think that the books and the stories she writes about, about children and their caregivers have such tremendous relevance to understanding attachment. And one of the things that I really love is if I can find a way to learn about what I do in unexpected places and learning more about attachment theory and how it manifests in the lives of of children and their caregivers is not something I would have been really expecting to find in a youth fiction book. So she is going to be speaking about several of her books, uh, but the first one that caught my attention was The War That Saved My Life. So I'm excited for you to join us for our conversation about that first book, why I thought it was relevant to the podcast and hearing more about her in terms of the wonderful books she has written for youth to be reading about some really important issues. So stay tuned. Kimberly Brubaker Bradley will be coming right up. Well, Kim, thank you so much for being willing to join me on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I know when I first reached out to you about the podcast and the content, it might have at first seemed, hmm, you know, is this really a fit? But I'm so excited to share with listeners everything I got out of your wonderful books. Um, I know uh, you're, you recently released your 17th book, uh, Fighting Words. Um, but I want to start out um, just getting a little information about your background before we get into some of these books. I want I want to encourage listeners to buy and read. So sure. I Sounds noticed in, in reading about your background that you were actually a chemistry major in college. I was. I actually really, um, I really love studying chemistry. It fascinates me. Uh, but I also really love writing. And I was the first person in my family to go to college. So, uh, well, not, not to go, but I was the first person to finish. And, um, you know, I, I was, I, I never really thought of writing as a career. I, I loved to read. I read all the time. Um, everyone in my family read all the time, but 
it never occurred to me that there were people behind the books that were that were real people. And so it wasn't really until I got to college that I saw that as even a possible career option. Uh, and so I was uh, I, I took a children's literature class my sophomore year while I was also taking organic chemistry, analytical chemistry and physics. And um, and it kind of kind of set me on a new path so that I, I never would have wanted to be an English major. I loved being a chemistry major and I worked as a research chemist uh, for the first several years after after I graduated, um, because, in part because nobody was going to pay me to write yet, but um, or, or not enough to live on at any rate. But yes. uh, yeah, writing writing really kind of shouldered the other side. Yes, yes. Well, you know, what I think is so powerful about your books as it relates in particular to those of us who are therapists, who work with children, who work with trauma, who think about attachment relationships, is I think that we learn best in story and in narrative. And, you know, we can pick up a book or something and or say, you know, this is what we would call therapeutic parenting for children or trauma-informed care or right, right. You know, whatever we want to say. But what I felt was so compelling about your books is through the stories that you tell, you teach us all of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, you... Um... You don't set out to, to teach a lesson when you write a book, you know, you, you set out to tell a story, but the best stories do, in fact, contain, you know, life lessons and important things. Uh, and, you know, really at, at heart, my stories are always about characters. And yes. Yes, yes. So I want to share with listeners how I discovered you and uh, got so excited about you. So uh, many of the listeners will, and I shared this with you, will recognize that I, a while back, I had a series about the history of attachment theory. And as you know, since I know we talked about this, but a significant part of the history of attachment theory was during the London Blitz um, in World War II, where children were sent to the countryside to stay with people to be safe from the bombings that were going on in London. And, you know, what was discovered was that the idea, well, they're physically safe, so they'll do much better than children who are staying with their parents around bombs. And that proved not to be true. And so it was this big aha experience of, the psychological safety specific caregivers mm-hmm. typically parents provide. So I was posting some pictures to promote the podcast and somebody said, well, my favorite book about all of that is the war that saved my life. So I thought, well, what's that? You know, I thought, is that written by some therapist or, you know, what, what is that? And, and I, I look, I just grabbed it really. I, I, I took the endorsement from the person very seriously. I didn't even know it was youth fiction. I just hopped on Amazon. Oh, that looks, that's an interesting cover. Um, oh, okay. I'll buy that. And once I got it, Kim, I could not put the book down. It is just so good. So when you did research about this um, and 
maybe briefly share the the plot. Uh, so as we're talking about it, it makes sense. Maybe briefly share the plot of this sure. with listeners. Yeah. Well, so this book started out uh, really with my fascination with the evacuation of school children because that that really is about the only time something like that happened in history, and they took. <laughs> You know, they actually took three million kids out of their homes in the fir- in the two days right before the war was declared and sent them to live with complete strangers. Um, and they every major city um, in England evacuated and sent kids out to the countryside where the population was less dense. They were really afraid the Germans were going to start off the war with poison gas bombs in the cities and that the civilian uh, death rate would be extremely high and that the psychological toll would be horrific. Um, they found a couple of things. You, you, as you said, they found that um, you know, being away from your parents was actually more traumatic. And, I, and that was something I found over and over because a lot of the people uh, that were affected by the blitz and, and understand that most of the kids, it wasn't the whole war. Uh, they kind of went back and forth in waves, depending on where they were from, where what was being bombed, where the dangerous spots were. But there were actually kids that went away to Welsh coal mining villages and came back to their parents six years later, not being able to speak English anymore. Wow. So, I mean, there it, it was a big disruptive thing. And a lot of these people left memoirs or even if they were just, you know, short oral history things that have been put online. There's a, there's an awful lot of information about them. And it really was just massively traumatic for, for many of them. Now, of course, I mean, one thing you have to realize is what they're saying is we're gonna take you to safety while your parents stay here and get bombed. So in addition to being separated from their parents, they're very worried about their parents. Yeah. The other thing is, is that there was absolutely no concern for who you were putting the kids with. Any, If you were designated a reception area and you had a spare room in your house, you could be forced to take kids that you did not want. Uh, and that included, I mean, you know, there were kids that unfortunately were put with abusive people and, and all sorts of things, but also just people that really didn't want kids uh, and, you know, would send them outside and say, come back at 6 p.m., you know, not until or right. you know, would not feed them with the money the government was providing, but just, you know, stash it away and, and the kids yes. were hungry. I mean, lots, lots of stuff. And we didn't have communication the way we do now. They couldn't phone their parents. They could write. But of course, I mean, in a lot of the poor areas, the, the parents are also functionally illiterate. So um, it was this great big thing. And I thought, well, from a point of view of a, of a writer, what if we flipped that? And what if for one kid, it was the best thing that possibly could have happened? Even though all of the horrible things were still true, that was still outweighed by getting out of the situation she was in. Yeah. So that's, that's where the idea from the book came. And, you know, who would that child have to be? Uh, and, and so I, I started to kind of conceptualize uh, a girl in a, in a small flat in the, in the East End of London, uh, living in, in quite a dire poverty, because actually that was one thing that middle class England um, really was not prepared for how impoverished a lot of these inner city kids who evacuated to them were. So the yes. people in the countryside uh, tended to be more financially financially better off than um, than the poor of the cities. And of course, if you were actually really wealthy, you weren't part of the national evacuation scheme because you either evacuated to your own country house or your relative's country house, or um, I mean, some kids were sent to Canada, although that, that stopped after they, uh, after a ship full of children was bombed. Um, 
And then, you know, quite wealthy people would often go live in hotels and things on, you know, in safe areas. So uh, disproportionately, it was lower income kids that were being evacuated. And that really shocked the nation, uh, the poverty that these kids had lived in and, um, you know, how how malnourished people were. And uh, there's an example from the east end of London, from the slums where my characters come from, 20% of the men who lived there who tried to um, sign up for the army were rejected because of rickets, which is caused by lack of vitamin D, which is yes. caused by sunshine as well as, as a poor Yes. Guy. And that's the yes. grown men. Yeah. So, um, and, and Ada had never seen grass, the Ada, the main character in my book, but that actually comes from, I mean, over and over and over, city kids did not know what grass was. Um, you know, that was not something they had ever experienced. So that's that whole thing sort of led to um, some of the socialist changes of England after the war. Uh, a lot of a lot of those political changes came about from seeing these these very poor kids. But as I'm trying to imagine my child, I, I didn't my character, I didn't want her to just be um, poor because that's that's fairly universal. And I wanted her to be uh, sort of a tough minded kid. I wanted her to be a survivor, somebody who would fight. Uh, and so I thought, unless I gave her more problems, she was already going to be a, the sort of person who would be transcending her circumstances. And, and to have her start out in that sort of a prison, I ended up giving her a phys physical disability as well. Yeah. And, um, and I went through and, and, you know, because you're a writer, you can make them anything you want. So I, I, I just went through and kind of um, tried to figure out, I wanted something that made it very hard for her to walk, but didn't make it hard for her to speak or think or use her hands. And so eventually we settled on Clubfoot, which had, um, it has a couple of advantages. One is it's actually a very frequent um, problem. It's about one in 200 births. Uh, we don't realize it because even back in the 1940s and even in very poor countries now, it's actually quite easy to fix most of the time. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not caused by malnutrition or anything. It's caused by just how the baby develops in utero. It's, it's straightly, strictly positional. So um, most of the time, you would never see an untreated club foot, but Ada's been neglected and abused and has been trying to walk on a severely um, curled underfoot for most of her life and really not been able to. So, and in the middle of all this bleakness, um, you know, she has a very horrible, abusive mother. Um, her father is dead because I, I actually had a couple of choices here. If he was a nice guy, then the whole book fell apart. Um, if he was, also abusive, I had to write about two horrible abusive parents. Um, but if he was dead, it wasn't his fault anymore. So we can yes. kind of make the book slightly less bleak. And, and I also give her a younger brother, Jamie. Um, you know, kids will say, well, you know, why do you have Jamie in the book? And I'll say, well, picture uh, what Ada's life would have been like in that one room trapped without Jamie. And the kids will all say, oh, because then it's just, again, she, she wouldn't have had a chance to grow up with any sort of normal human empathy or anything. I mean, if she was just completely isolated. Yeah. So, um, yes. So, uh, so yeah, that's where it comes from. These, these kids um, are evacuated into the countryside and, and they get put with a woman who, um, 
is is in mourning and depressed and doesn't really think that she has anything to offer uh, and, and kind of become a family that way. Yes, yes. And so, Kim, we have the character you're describing, Ada, yes. who is 10 years old and has this uh, club foot, mm-hmm. which has led, as you said, to her being sequestered like like almost kept in a room in a prison because her her mother did not uh want her to to be let out like that that was the shame of her and then they go to the countryside and they're placed with someone named Susan Smith. (laughs) And so you know the first thing that was so fascinating to me about about what you've described so far is that depending what your current circumstances were like being an evacuee could be better. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and really, again, I mean, almost never from an emotional point of view, but sometimes, sometimes. and um, because of course not everybody started off in a great home and then financially, yes. uh, Yes. fairly good chance of being. Yeah. She's coming from extreme poverty, not seeing, these kids not seeing grass, her barely being outside because of the additional isolation from the foot. And I think, you know, another thing that really struck me so much was the attitude of the woman that they went to live with was, let's talk about that. So they, as you said, they just kind of got plopped into people's houses Mm -hmm. that that had an extra room. Yes. So um, the the trains would have gone or in in some cases, buses and even uh, ferries would have just taken the kids to reception areas and dropped them off. And they didn't have a plan that, you know, school A is going here, school B is going here. They just loaded up each train as it came with whatever students showed up and took them wherever. So it was it was quite chaotic. And in most of the villages that were reception areas, the people that were going to take incoming kids would would meet them at the village hall or the church or some school, some sort of, um, you know, large community building and just pick out the kids they wanted. Uh, and that was also fairly traumatic, of course, for yes. for most of the kids. Um, and kind of and like the orphan train stories, much like the orphan train stories. And mm-hmm. um, again, there was often a financial disparity because, of course, there were poor people in the countryside, too, but they didn't have extra rooms in their house. So they weren't necessarily taking on extra kids. I mean, you had to have had a, a place to put the kid. Yes. Uh, you know, if you had a, a bedroom, you might be assigned two children if you had a spare room. So. Yeah. But um, so these two go and um, Ada and her brother, Jamie, um, and are the last two chosen. There's no one left. No one picks them. And so uh, the head of the of the women's uh, voluntary service, the WVS, which was the real sort of uh, war volunteer organization that was in charge of running the evacuations, just you know scoops them up and says, "Well, I know a place where you can go," um, because she's recognizing that somebody that should have been there to pick up a kid is not there to pick up a kid. You know, someone there that has someone in the village that has a spare room and didn't come to get a child, and that's uh, Susan Smith. And so these two kids just get dumped on her. And so the kids know they're not chosen. Um, 
you know, she really didn't want them, was trying to avoid getting out of, of having to take care of kids. And uh, so they get off to a fairly rocky start. Um, well, I think, you know, this is what is so incredible about reading this book from my perspective is the many layers and things, the emotional aspects that it touches, just even just that, you know, that we weren't picked, like yeah. we were the leftovers and there had to this is this book's not overtly about foster care, which is in in your more recent book, but as but this idea that I don't belong somewhere, I'm not one, and I'm passed over, and how that can resonate with with many children who have um, difficult histories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I mean, that was that was very much deliberately done. Yeah, yeah. The idea that that they weren't wanted right from the start. Um, and and um, you know Ada really is is sort of used to being self sufficient and and so she sort of figures they'll be mostly fine, um, but she's what she's she's really less prepared for getting along with Susan and starting to like her and that's the part that starts yes. to be very threatening to Ada. And maybe Susan's even not so prepared for that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. she's yeah. this reluctant caregiver, but. There's aspects of her, and this was another thing that that really I felt highlighted some important concepts for our listeners. She was a reluctant but honest caregiver. There, there was something so genuine about her that why don't you talk a little bit about their well, relationship and how you developed it? There's a lot of things about um Susan, that I, she was actually one of one of my easiest characters ever to write, and I and I really like her. But um, I do too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one thing that is is never said in the books, but it is part of Susan's backstory, is that she's gay, um, and that she was in a relationship with a woman who who had died about three years before this book takes place, Becky. And uh, Becky is the one who who rode and had horses, and that's how there's why there's still a pony in the backyard. Butter uh, had been Becky's pony, but um, it, it really the um, there's nothing remotely sexual about the book in any way, and um, in, in the second book we we sort of discuss it a little bit more, but not not a lot. I mean, it's not it's there because it's an important part of Susan's backstory because it's part of what lets her understand Ada is that she knows what it's like to be blamed for something you have no control over. And yes. to be expected to feel ashamed for something you have no control over. Yes. Uh, and so she she really understands Ada without even really having to think about it at a much deeper level than your average person would. Um, and part of the reason that she's reluctant to take care of kids is, is that it's really been very hard for her. She's kind of been adrift since Becky died. Doesn't really feel like she has a place in the village. Doesn't really feel like she has... Um, a role to play and she doesn't want to do a bad job of, you know, she never really expected to be a mother at the time. Um, you know, there were certainly plenty of, of longstanding gay relationships. We can look back at history, uh, but it would have been very rare for, for a gay couple to be raising a child at the time. Yes. And so it had never been part of what she thought was possible in her life. And then she also just doesn't want, um, 
to be a miserable parent, you know, if she's if she's genuinely depressed, she she doesn't have the energy for this. She doesn't want to be bad at it. Uh, yes. she's, a, she's a very capable person who's used to being good at things. And, uh, and so, you know, she starts off just thinking this is this is beyond what I can handle. Um, and at the beginning, there are a lot of days when when Ada and Jamie are kind of left to their own devices. But even still, you know, the very first day, um, the first thing she does is, is give them baths and discovers Ada's club foot, which Ada's been trying to hide. And uh, yes, she has a, you know, wrapped up. She's she's yeah, has it wrapped up and is trying to hide it. Yeah. And um, so for the first time that Ada hears that it's a club foot, that's not something she had known and gets a pair of crutches, uh, which make it infinitely easier for her to move already. I mean, just that very simple you know, yeah. that's also so striking when you think about it, um, because many children, I mean, more, more children come into the foster care system, for example, due to many more due to neglect than overt allegations of abuse that may be present also. But and, you know, I, I, it really struck me like something so primitive and simple as crutches were like life changing for her. Yeah. Yeah. Because moving would always cause pain. And, and, and then it didn't, you know, you could get across the room. Yeah. Physical yes. hurting um, or without having to crawl, which, you know, she could do in the past. Um, and, and, you know, Susan gives them clean clothes to wear, washes their clothes. And, right. And gives them dinner and says, you know, I don't have anything. I, I wasn't ready for you coming, but it's still a, a better dinner than they're used to, you know, so they're sort of. Oh, yes. That reminds me of one of my favorite parts of the book is when they're trying, when the kids are trying to sort out things that she says, like when she said, I don't have any food and they're like, what is she talking about? She has all kinds. I mean, she means I don't have, you know, how we might say that if we're, if someone who's not living in poverty, I don't have everything to make a complete meal tonight. I mean, and they're like, why is she saying there's no food? I mean, as I was telling people about the book, I, there's a bunch of different examples like that, where I love how you have like this inner dialogue with the kids that to them, she has abundant food. Right. Right. And, And Susan is not ever meant to be portrayed as, as really upper class. I mean, the Thorntons certainly are, uh, you know, Susan has enough to get by well, and, and really live nearby another family that, right. Yeah. But, but, a, but know. to these kids, you know, she's just completely, um, you know, it's a lap of luxury. I mean, you know, sheets on the bed and, and, oh, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. And then I remember, um, another funny part, um, with, they were like, why does she have, I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, why does she have a sheet on the table? I mean, she had a tablecloth. Yeah, a blanket on the table. Yeah. A blanket on the table, yeah. So right. these, these um, extra things that we would see as more every day, but it's a luxury that they hadn't been exposed to. Right. It just makes right. you so aware of the level of deprivation some kids have experienced. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And and less so now, because now, you know, even kids raised in poverty usually are seeing other families on TV. Yes. Um, and, and on the, you know, they have the internet, they have um, things like, you know, that. I mean, it's a much different world than, than when the communication was also very limited. Yes, yes, yes. 
Oh, wow. I see we are at the midpoint of our interview. So folks, we have much, much more to to talk to Kimberly Brubaker Bradley about with her fantastic books. I really hope you will join us for part two of this interview as we continue to talk about The War That Saved My Life and some other of her books that she has written more recently. So please join us next time. And um, Kimberly, thanks thanks for talking so far. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 